got your Bibles, make your way to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, we're uh, in a series that we're calling Commit. Uh, in the month of September, we're looking at just some things that Christians, as we have committed our life to Jesus, that we must also be committed to. We're using the book of Philippians as kind of the guide for that, taking one chapter each week. In the first week in Philippians chapter 1, we talked about that as Christians, we've got to be committed to gospel ministry. Uh, we talked about the fact that Paul is in prison, and he has a very unique perspective on his imprisonment. He actually rejoices that he's in prison which is very odd. He doesn't whine. He doesn't complain. He rejoices. Why? He sees prison as an opportunity to serve Jesus. It's an opportunity to share with the guards about the good news of Christ. And so we challenge you that part of following Christ is to be committed that no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what you're going through, we are to see it as an opportunity to serve Christ. Uh, last week, we talked about the fact of gospel unity. Paul says, I want you to be of one mind, of, of uh, one accord. The culture of individuality has started to impact your unity, and I'm asking you to commit to being one. As Christ laid himself down and became a servant, so you should lay yourself down and serve one another to commit to unity. Well, now in chapter 3, we're going to see another thing that we as followers of Christ are be, to be committed to. Uh, we're going to look at a lot of Philippians 3 this morning, but let's pick up just in verse 12. If you're able to stand, please do so as we honor the reading of God's Word. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Paul's in prison writing these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if any of you, anything think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory and their shame, and their minds are set on earthly things." But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. This is God's Word. Pray with me. Father, thank You for this time together this morning. Um, I believe life-changing things happen in these moments. And there are many in this room, maybe all in this room, that need a wake-up call as to what the Christian life is really all about, what we are to be pursuing, what the passion of our life ought to be. So Holy Spirit, would you please, by a gift of grace, come and speak to us? Bring these words alive and challenge us to press on. 
For the glory of Jesus, we ask it in his name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm not exactly what you might call a camper, all right? Um, Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm all about going up north and staying in a cabin. That's awesome. That's tons of fun. I love doing that. I'm even all for one of those sweet, nice RVs, you know, the kind of RV that's got the AC and the TV and the the king-size bed. I am all for that. I got no problems with it. No, what I'm talking about, I'm not really a camper, is what is real camping. You know, the kind of camping where you actually sleep in a tent, the kind of camping where you sleep in a sleeping bag, the kind of camping where you sleep on the ground. I know. I mean, it's just, it's not my thing. In fact, when it comes to this kind of camping, I'm in total agreement with Jim Gaffigan. My wife always brings up, camping's a tradition in my family. Hey, it was a tradition in everyone's family till we came up with a house. (laughs) My parents never took me camping. You know why? Because they loved me. (laughs) It'll get you closer to nature. I want to keep the relationship professional. If it's so great outside, why are all the bugs trying to get in my house? (laughs) Happy camper! Has anyone ever really been a happy camper? Because whenever we use that term, we're being sarcastic. He is not a happy camper. (laughs) Why don't we just call him a camper? (laughs) He's miserable. You know who's a happy camper? The guy leaving the campsite. (laughs) He's the happiest camper. He gets to take a shower. (laughs) He ruined camping for me. By show of hands, how many of you like actually enjoy real camping? Anybody? Yeah, I figured there'd be a few of you. And listen, I, I want you to know, I admire you. <laughs> no, 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 I'm not being sarcastic, all right? It's sad when you laugh at that. Um, I actually do admire you because I want to enjoy camping. I do, because I love the outdoors. I love fishing. I love being on the water. I love campfires. I absolutely love the outdoors. I even see the benefits of camping. You would say, oh, you're out in nature, and there's peace and quiet, and you can spend good time with your family. I totally agree with all those benefits, and and I think that's awesome. It's the thing is, as I look back on the attempts in my life when I've tried to really camp, I've come to the conclusion as to why I don't like it. It's because, to me, it's not worth the effort. It's not worth the effort. Like, you're constantly having to fight with these things, right? Which is like the devil's tools. (laughs) Nothing tests my sanctification more than these things, all right? And you get the tent out, and there's always like a couple of pegs that are missing, you know. Uh, I, I never get a good night's sleep, so I wake up tired and sore. You wake up in the morning, and the tent looks like this, right? You've all had that experience. You fight bugs. You, you, there's noises during the night, and you constantly have that fear that you're going to be eaten alive by bears, you know. 
And aside from those things, camping's awesome, right? You see, here's the thing. I want to enjoy it. I really do. I see all the benefits of it. I admire people that do it. It's just not worth the effort. Now, my guess is it may not be camping for you, but there's something in your life, there's an area in your life where you've said the same thing. Maybe it was a relationship where you've said, man, I'd love for it to work out. I see the benefits of the relationship, but I just come to the point where it's not worth the effort. I love working for this company, but that boss, oh my goodness, like it's just not worth the effort. I'd love to be in shape. I'd love to exercise. I admire people who exercise daily, but for me, it's just not worth the effort. We've all said that in some area of our life. Now, here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that that's the attitude many Christians have about holiness. We admire people that are holy. We see the benefits of being holy. We want holiness, but we're not willing to put forth the effort. We assume that that's just something we can admire, but it's not something we ever have to actually experience. Kevin DeYoung writes it this way, who's been helpful in this illustration in his book, A Hole in Your Holiness. He writes, holiness, like like camping, it's fine for other people. You respect those who make their lives harder than they have to be, but it's not your thing It wasn't what your family prayed about or your church emphasized. So to this day, it's not your passion. Sure, it would be great for you to be a better person. And you do hope to avoid big sins. But you figure since you're saved by grace, holiness is not required of you. And frankly, your life seems fine without it. In other words, many Christians, like this camping analogy, have settled with a distant relationship with holiness. It's something they admire, it's something that they want, but it's not anything that they actually commit to. It's not something they actually put forth effort to achieve. All eyes, all ears right here. The Bible does not give you that option. Listen to what 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 7 says. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather train yourself for godliness. Put forth the effort. Do the hard work of godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds the promise for the present life and also the life to come. Let me give you one more. Hebrews 12:14. Hebrews 12:14. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness. Strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If there is no evidence of godliness in your life, there is no evidence of God in your life. If there is no evidence of godliness in your life, there is no evidence of 
God in your life. It is why to be a Christian, to be a Christian is to commit to Christian maturity, to commit to growing in godliness, to commit to holiness. And that is exactly what Paul teaches in Philippians 3. Look at verse 10. That I may know Him, that is Christ, and the power of His resurrection, and share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on. I put forth the effort to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Paul is committed to maturity. Now what I want to do this morning in in, in just a short amount of time is I want to paint a portrait for us as to what maturity looks like. Then I want to show us how we get there. And then I want to tell us just a few things we need to keep in mind as we're running this race. Okay? What does maturity look like? How do we get there? And what are some things we need to keep in mind as we run? All right, let's go. A portrait of maturity. Just using Philippians chapter 2, the latter part, and the rest of Philippians 3. Put your seatbelt on, we're going to go fast. What does Christian maturity look like? Because I could stand up here and say, man, you got to grow, you got to pursue holiness, you got to put forth the effort to grow in Christ-likeness, and we would say, yeah, but what does that look like? So I'm going to give you six things real quickly out of this text in terms of what mature Christians do, what maturity looks like. The first is this, mature Christians have a genuine concern for other people. Now, the key word there is the word genuine. Mature Christians have a genuine concern for others. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. Now notice, for I have no one like him. There's something about Timothy that puts him in a different category than others. Here's what it is. Who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare? For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Paul says Timothy is unique. Timothy is set apart in that, unlike everybody else who's only concerned about themselves, he is genuinely concerned about you. Have you ever known anybody like that? I mean, they genuinely cared. They didn't fake it. They weren't going through the motions. They weren't doing it because it was the Christian thing to do. They genuinely cared about your welfare. That's what mature Christians do. That's Christ-likeness. And you say, but but aren't all Christians supposed to be that way? Well, yes, but according to the Apostle Paul, very few are. Mature Christians are caring Christians. Notice the second thing is that mature Christians remain faithful in suffering. They don't let suffering get them off course of following Jesus. Verse 25 Chapter 2, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. I love that name, Epaphroditus. You should name your first child Epaphroditus. 
my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger to minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been, notice, has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, verse 29. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. There's two things here about Epaphroditus. He deserves a whole sermon in and of itself. But first of all, I love Epaphroditus because he's unlike almost any church member I've ever met. Okay, And this is not meant as a criticism. Most people, when they think about the church, when something happens in their life, their default response is, what's the church going to do for me? right? How's the church going to minister to my needs? And that's fair, okay? It's totally fair because we are here for one another and to minister to one another. But here's what I love about Epaphroditus and what makes him unique from almost any church member I've ever met. He gets sick and his first response is, I'm afraid that when they hear I'm ill, it will cause them to be too concerned. That's just, that's strange, That is a rare bird whose first response is, I'm more concerned about them than I am having my needs met. Even more than that, that was kind of just for free. The main point here is Paul says he got sick to the point that he almost died. But even though he's almost on his deathbed, even though he's ill and sick, he doesn't let that keep him from serving Christ. Have you ever known Christians like that? Where it was just like suffering after suffering after suffering, but they never, ever for a moment took their eyes off Jesus. I mean, the weight of the pain and through the tears of life, they just kept serving. They've got scars to show. Some of you know exactly what that feels like. Look at me. Mature Christians are tested Christians. They have demonstrated the genuineness of their faith through the fire of suffering. Number three, mature Christians are caring Christians. They care for others. Mature Christians are faithful in suffering. They're tested. But thirdly, mature Christians, I love this right here, they boast in who Jesus is, not what they've done. This is big. This is big. They boast in who Jesus is, not what they've done. Pick it up, chapter 3, verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship the Spirit of God and, underline this phrase, glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is addressing now a group, I think I mentioned this two weeks ago, a a group called the Judaizers. The Judaizers were simply a group of Jewish people who were adding the law to faith in Christ so that they could um, put others down. They could could lift themselves up by showing everybody what, what they've done. Look at how good I am. I've been circumcised. I've followed the law. I'm a descendant of Abraham. Look at all the things I've done. Man, I'm great in the eyes of God. In fact, I'm a little better than you because I've done more than you. You ever known Christians like that? They were just like constantly saying, okay, 
man, at least I'm not as bad as they are. Well, notice what Paul does. I don't have time in verse 4 through 6 to go through this line by line, but Paul gives his resume. He's like, all right, you want to play that game? Here is everything I've accomplished in my religious resume. I'm this, I'm that, I'm from this tribe, I'm Hebrew of Hebrew. If you want to play the game that this is about what you've accomplished, well, I have accomplished more than you all. But that's not Paul's conclusion. That's not his point. Here's his point, verse 7. We're going somewhere. Hang with me. But whatever I gained, whatever gain I had, in other words, whatever I've done and accomplished, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that is human waste. We won't go any further than that. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now notice this phrase. Not having a righteousness of my own, not what I do, Judaizers, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on on faith. Right here, faith family. This is so big. This is so big. Paul is saying the Judaizers want to make this all about what they do. If I were to play that game, I've done more than them all. But I don't boast in what I've done. I boast in a righteousness that didn't come from me. I boast in what Christ has done for me. It's not about what I do. It's about who Christ is. Let me say it this way. All that summarized in this simple sentence. You ready? Mature Christians are secure Christians. They don't have to feel like they have to keep measuring up. Man, you, we get bombarded all the time with insecurities, don't you? I do. And all week long, I'm not this, and I've got to be that, and, and the church has to be this way, and, and, and this, if, if you could only be a better spouse, if you could only look this way, if you could only measure up. Man, the culture is all about defining you based on what you do. But Paul has learned the freedom of being secure in what Christ has done. He doesn't need to build a big resume because the resume of Jesus' righteousness is all he'll ever need. And so you can play your little religious games of who's better than who. Jesus is better than all, and he's my life. Is that freedom, anybody? I mean, my goodness, it's one thing to preach that and amen that, but boy, if we could ever get to the point where we lived secure in the work of Christ, that's maturity. Here's another one that actually comes out of this context. Number four is, Mature Christians don't use rules to feel superior to others. Mature Christians don't use rules to feel superior to others. I take this from the fact that the Judaizers are using the law, as I've already referenced, to try to make themselves look better uh, than other people. And so they're using the law like a pair of binoculars, okay? 
They're trying to take the law and they're just saying, oh my goodness, you're awful. Oh my goodness, I'm so much better than you in that area. Whoo, you're that bad? Boy, I don't know what I'd do with myself if I were that bad. And what they're doing is they're taking the law and they're trying to point out all the faults of everybody else. Here's why I know that. That word dogs, you ready? That's what the Jews used to call the Gentiles. They called them dogs. We are better than them. Paul takes that and turns it back on the Judaizers. They're the dogs because they don't understand the law. The law wasn't meant for you to take the law and show how everybody is worse than you are. The law was given as a what? As a mirror. Right? That's what I have to look at every week. All right? (laughs) It wasn't that bad. All right? The law is a mirror that's reflecting back to you not how everybody else has fallen short, but how what? You have fallen short. You see, what what religious people like to do is they like to use the Bible as binoculars. And they like to point out everybody else's fault. They're consumed with the speck in your eye while ignoring the log in their own. Right? You ever known people like that? But mature Christians are humble Christians. Because they recognize that the law has exposed their own sin. That's what mature Christians do do. Notice number five. This will get us. If the other ones haven't gotten us, this one will. Mature Christians feel less and less at home in the world. Mature Christians feel less and less at home in the world. Look at verse 18 of chapter 3. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But, so here's a contrast, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the contrast Paul makes. There are those who their mind is always occupied with the things of this life. They're consumed in earthly things. They glory in their shame. They laugh at their sin. Their God is their belly. You're like, what does that mean? It means whatever desire they have, they do it. Whatever craving they have, they try to fulfill it. They're living for now. That's what's happening. But, Paul says, I want to contrast that with us. We await what? The Lord Jesus We long for Christ to split the sky. We're not living for the now. We're living for the then. And yes, there are important things in this life now. And yeah, that's good and great. But the longing of our heart is not temporary satisfaction, but eternal satisfaction with Jesus Christ. Right here. When's the last time you found yourself feeling less and less at home in the world. Anybody lately just been like, I'm not sure I belong here. Because there's a longing in my heart for something more. There's a longing in my heart to be with Christ for all eternity. My niece got married yesterday in, uh, in Tennessee. 
And my brother is sending me pictures and, you know, just even the, the, the days and weeks leading up to the wedding, it's been interesting and just talking with the family of um, how everything seemed to be secondary in light of preparing for that day, you know, and, and brides, you really get this, okay, more than us guys do. It's like everything's about planning for that day. It's getting in that dress. It's making sure everything's right. I mean, it's like everything else begins to become secondary. Why? Because there's a day approaching, a day that's coming. That's exactly what Paul was talking about. Listen, Christian, there's a day that's coming when Jesus is going to return. And mature Christians long for that day more and more and more every day. And the things of the world grow strangely dim in light of that. That's what mature Christians long for. And here's the last one, number six is mature Christians invite others to follow their example. Mature Christians invite others to follow their example. Verse um, 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul has no hesitation of saying, follow me. Look to my example. In fact, I think it was the, the Corinthians that Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, you might think that's arrogant. You might think, how in the world could Paul say, look to me and follow my example? Well, here's why we know he's not being arrogant. He's already said in verse 12, I'm not perfect. So Paul is not saying, I'm a perfect example. In fact, Paul is saying, if you follow me, you're going to see some imperfections. But he has grown in his walk with God where he can turn to others and say, you can follow my example. In fact, you ought to look to my example. I want you to listen to this, Christian. Listen, you will always be a follower of Christ. But at some point, you've got to start being a leader for others. Amen? Like That was a great place for an amen right there. You're always going to be a follower. You're always going to be a follower of Jesus. But there's got to be a point in your life when you can turn to others and say, follow me. How dare we be like the Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews had to write and say, you ought to be teachers by now, but yet you still need milk. Some of you have been a Christian for 20 years. And you're telling me you're not at the place where even though you have imperfections, you can't look at other people and say, yes, follow my example as I follow after Christ. Parents, can you say to your children, follow me? Teenagers, can you say to the teenagers you go to school with, follow me? Men, can you say to other men? Women, can you say to other women, follow me? If not, why not? And if not, when? Are you simply going to be a follower all your life? Or are you going to become mature where you can invite others to follow you as you follow Christ? Well, now that's 
That's Christian maturity. That's just a chapter and a half. I mean, we went through that fast. We were not even touching on the rest of the New Testament. I don't have lunch plans, do you? Let's go, right? That's just six things out of a chapter and a half of what mature Christians do. And we're going to stop there because I'm convicted enough. I'm already feeling like I don't live up to those things. That there are areas of maturity where I need to grow. Where i got to put forth the effort. But what does that effort look like? Oh my goodness, this is big. This is worth the price of admission. What does that effort look like? What does the effort for maturity mean? And this is... I cannot tell you how freeing this is if we get this right. So let me just give you a very simple sentence because it has to do with your passion. Are you ready? Everybody looking here? Everybody's listening? Maturity happens when the greatest passion of your life is for Jesus. Maturity happens when the greatest passion of your life is for Jesus, to know Jesus. Let me show you where I get that in the text, and then I'll I'll try to explain it. Verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Look at verse 10, That I may know Him and become like Him in His death. You see, here's the church won't do this for you. Religion will never do this for you. Going through rituals will not do this for you. Only Jesus can do this for you, which means the path to maturity is not maturity, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's the fact that He is the the most supreme value in your life. You treasure Him more than you do anything in your life. When you you have that kind of passion where you treasure Him, that's when maturity happens. That's when growth and godliness occurs. It's like what Jesus says in the parable of Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. What's the kingdom of heaven like? Treasuring Jesus above everything. It's seeing him, which is what Paul says, as the supreme worth, the the supreme value of your life. Now here's why that's important, okay? Come in for just a minute. Do you remember, I want to go back a few months, do you remember, this was a breakthrough for us as a faith family, and some of you are are new since then, and so I want to explain this. Um, I got emails over there, and good emails, right? Um, People talked to me in the hallway of just like, this was paradigm shifting in the way they thought about the Christian life. Do you remember when we talked about it? And even if you don't, just say yes so that I'll feel good about it. Um, We talked about Jesus being the true vine, Do you remember that? And what we said was, Jesus calls us to bear fruit. You you could call that maturity, holiness, godliness. We're to bear fruit. And what we talked about was the fact where most Christians make the mistake is they try bearing fruit in their own strength. 
So what happens is they leave from sermons like this and they say, I'm going to go be more mature. Woohoo! I'm going to grow in godliness. I'm going to go bear fruit. But what we talked about was you don't bear fruit by focusing on bearing fruit. Do you remember that? How do you bear fruit in John 17? You abide in the vine. It was like so paradigm shifting that that bearing fruit is not something I go do, but I actually pursue Jesus with all that I am, and I love Him, and I run after Him, and I want to worship Him, and as He is the greatest passion of my life, His life gets squeezed out of the branches. It gets produced in me. Is that not Philippians 3? How do you get maturity? By going and trying to be mature? How do you get maturity? By having Jesus become the greatest passion of your life. In fact, the connection of verse 10 is that I might know Him, and then He says, and become like Him in His death. How does becoming like Him happen? By knowing Him. I love it! I'm so excited! Because it just shoots religion out of the water. Because this isn't about a religion, it's about a relationship where you grow in Jesus and His life gets produced in you and you become more like Him. Anybody like, ooh, that's, man, that is, that is the most freeing thing to know. Producing fruit is not something I do. I just focus on Jesus and let Him live His life through me. All right, so what we're after is Jesus. And as we run after Him, we grow in His likeness. What are some things we need to keep in mind as we run? Real quick and we're out of here. The perspective of maturity. Paul's mindset as he's running this race. I'm going to give you three things practically that's going to be helpful. Here's the first. As long as you're alive, you haven't arrived. As long as you're alive, you haven't arrived. Say that with me. As long as I'm alive... I haven't arrived. Anybody uh, not alive this morning? Right, show of hands. Okay, okay. All of you here are breathing and you're alive. As long as you're alive, you have not arrived. Look at verse 12. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. In other words, as long as I'm alive, I haven't arrived. Here's what I love. Remember who we're talking about. The Apostle Paul saw Jesus physically on the road to Damascus. He's received revelations from God. He wrote most of the New Testament. He's planted churches all over. He's seen revivals happen all over the place. And yet, he's an old man in prison. And he still is pressing on. I love that. Because Paul's attitude is, as long as I'm alive... I haven't arrived. In fact, that's what mature people say. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. In other words, maturity is not arriving, it's realizing you haven't. Maturity is not arriving, it's realizing you haven't arrived. Any of you like to garden? Anybody? Gardeners in here? Okay. Bunch of campers, but not many gardeners, all right? And you know what happens in gardening, right? You have to do something called pruning, Right? You've got to pull weeds. You've got to cut things off the, the, uh, you know, the trees or the, the branches to help it grow and be healthy. There's the process of pruning. 
For some of us, it's not this kind of pruning. For some of us, like me, it's this kind of pruning, all right? Don't, don't worry, I won't throw it at you, okay? There's a lot of things, a lot of branches, a lot of things that need to be removed in our life, a lot of things that we've got to put forth effort to address. John Owen said, either be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You see, the process of gardening is never over. You don't garden and then never have to garden again. I'm glad I got that done. Now for the next 30 years, I can just sit and enjoy my garden. No. If you garden, you know that it's an ongoing process. Look at me, look at me, look at me. That's not just true of gardening. That's true of growing. It's true of growing in godliness. As long as you're alive, you haven't arrived. Here's the second mindset, is the right path is seldom the easy path. The right path is seldom the easy path. Say that with me. The right path is seldom the easy path. Paul uses language here like straining and pressing on. It's imagery of hard work. It's focused intensity because spiritual maturity does not happen on accident. Paul's approach to the Christian life is not that of an easy jog. You know, you just kind of get up in the morning and I drink my cup of coffee and I maybe read a verse or two and I might think about Jesus a little bit during the day. It's just kind of a little jog. No, Paul's uh, impression of the Christian life, his approach to the Christian life, is that of running. Like every single ounce of who he is, he is running. And that's a painful process. That requires discipline. It's not easy to run with that kind of intensity, and yet that's exactly what Paul says the Christian life is about. The right path is not the easy path, but you can't afford to say, but I don't really want to put forth the effort. What are you talking about? That's what the Christian life is, is to run after Jesus, even though it will be hard. Uh, the, the expression has been given before. The statement has been made. Some of you have heard it. The church is like a hospital. How many of you have ever heard that? The church is like a hospital for sinners. And I thought about that this week, and I thought, that's true. But what most people think is a hospital for sinners means we just welcome sinners. And, or, or we welcome sick people, and that's true. But here's the thing. Hospitals don't welcome sick people and let them stay sick. Hospitals welcome sick people, and we do, all kinds of sick people. But they help them identify what's causing that sickness, and then they lead them through what is often the painful process of transformation. That's why I get up in your grill every week about Jesus. That's why I challenge you the way I challenge you, challenge me the way I need to be challenged because, yes, this race is hard, but it is worth it. My friend, if we sit here and let each other stay the way we are, we're not a hospital, we're hospice. We're not a hospital, we're hospice. If we're truly a hospital for sick people, we are committed to not let each other remain the same. The right path will not be the easy path. Third and finally, success is not forever. 
And failure is not final. Remember this as you're running. Success is not forever. And failure is not final. Look at verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Paul has put his past behind him. All of his success, which is enormous... And all of his failures, which was enormous as well. He killed Christians, hated the church, wanted nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, I've had a whole lot of success in life. I've had a whole lot of failures in life. But I've left them all behind. And I'm pressing forward. I don't care how great your life has been in the past spiritually, and I don't care how horrible your life has been in the past spiritually. The point is, are you running today? Because the issue is, past success will make you think you're more mature than you are, and you'll settle in. And past failures will make you think that you're worse than you are, and you'll give up. But whether you settle in or whether you give up, the same thing has happened. Namely, you're no longer moving forward. So stop resting on the spiritual victories of the past and stop being paralyzed by the failures of your past and get up today and press on. Success is not forever and failure is not final. I close with this. It was June 9th, 1973. History was made. The setting was the the Belmont Stakes. A, A horse that you have likely heard about before, Secretariat, became the first horse in 25 years to win the Triple Crown. Now, most people thought that Secretariat would not win the Belmont because Secretariat was known for his amazing speed But Belmont is a long track. It's a mile and a half. And they did not think his stamina would be able to hold up for that long of a race. And then the race started. Secretariat set out on an amazing pace. And all of the commentators, all the the people who were looking on, did not believe he would be able to keep that pace for that long. But what happened... And the final moments of that race was absolutely amazing. They're moving on the turn now. For the turn at Secretariat. It looks like he's opening. The lead is increasing. Make it three, three and a half. He's moving into the turn. Secretariat holding on to a large lead. Dan is second and then it's a long way back to Mike Allen and twice a print. They're on the turn. It's Secretariat is blazing along the first three quarters of a mile in 109 and four fifths. Secretariat is widening now. He is moving like a tremendous machine. Secretariat by 12. Secretariat by 14 lengths on the turn. Cam is dropping back. It looks like they'll catch him today as Mike Allen and Twice the Prince are both coming up to him now. But Secretariat is all alone. He's out there almost a sixteenth of a mile away from the rest of the horses. Secretariat is in a position that seems impossible to catch. He's into the stretch. Secretariat leads his field by 18 lengths. And now Price of Prince has taken second, and Mike Ballard has moved back to third. They're in the stretch. Secretariat has opened a 22-length lead. He is going to be 
Secretary, it didn't slow down like everybody thought he would. He kept running faster. In fact, they interviewed the trainer after the race, and here's what the trainer said, quote, Had there been another lap, his heart would have exploded. Secretariat ran his race with all his heart. I don't know where you are in your race. Some of you today haven't even started. But you can today by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Wherever you are in your race, look in my eyes right now. I'm challenging you. To run faster and run with all your heart towards Jesus Christ more than you ever have before in your life. Will it be difficult? Sure it will. Will there be challenges along the way? Absolutely. Will you experience successes and failures? Most certainly. But run with all your heart. And if you do, I promise you this. When the race is over, it will have been worth all the effort. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, that's the challenge for us today. Uh, we are to commit to gospel maturity. We are to commit to holiness. For you to be the consuming passion of our life, that your life would then be lived through us. Lord, I pray that today's message has challenged us. I pray that it's convicted us. That's a good thing. That's a gift of grace. We're not supposed to stay the way we are. We are sick people that need to identify our areas of sickness and begin to grow in health and grow in godliness. And I trust that your word has done that for us today. Lord, if there's someone here today and they've never started a race with you, they've, they're not running after you because they don't know you as Savior, I pray that today would be that day where they would trust you as Lord and Savior. For others in this room, some are limping, some have fallen over, some are just trying to figure out where they are, I pray that today you would put them back on the right course. Get their heart on you. Then they can run with all their heart. That's my prayer. Do that for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.